0: And let me invite you to turn your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. You'll find it on page 996 of the Pew Bible. If you want to follow along there, that's Mark chapter 3, and it's page 996 of your Pew Bible. And we'll be looking in just a moment at uh, verses 13 and following, but before we do that, I want you to notice with me that in the verses leading up to our section this morning, the picture, the picture is one of overwhelming ministry need. Overwhelming needs of ministry. We often imagine Jesus' ministry as neat, orderly, perfect in every regard. And yet Mark and the other gospel writers show us that Jesus was not magically immune from the reality of doing ministry in this fallen world. Jesus understands the difficulties associated with our own attempts at ministry, whether in our home, uh, me preaching right now, uh, the team that we're sending out. All these things are difficult and done in difficult circumstances. We always do the work of ministry. We always do the work of ministry. As Jesus did in a context of chaos, opposition, and suffering. And this is the context of our passage today. So for example, just briefly look at verse 7. We read that Jesus attempted, in verse 7, to withdraw temporarily from the weight of public ministry for a time of prayer. Maybe this was a day off, or maybe it was just a few hours, but it was a time he needed as a real human person to recover from the press of ministry. His attempt at a brief retreat for prayer is cut off. It's stopped by the pressing crowds, and pressing really is the right word because verse 9 tells us that a boat, a boat had to be put near him lest the crowd would crush him. In his humanity, his real humanity, Jesus is utterly overwhelmed by the crowds, the noise, the pushing, the shoving. But as our perfect savior, he endures all the chaos and he obeys God perfectly in it. But it did take its toll on his very real human nature. So in the lead up to our passage today, what we see is an enormous amount of ministry to be done. And Jesus was being stretched beyond the limits of his human nature. In his very real human body, he cannot be everywhere at once. He cannot meet the demands by himself. Alongside that, also remember that Jesus has before him always the cross. In other words, Jesus knows that he will not continue in public ministry for decades. Once he has revealed himself, once he begins to speak and act, once the demons have begun to confess him, things will escalate quickly. His time bodily on earth is short. He doesn't have decades to fulfill his ministry. Jesus will always, he's doing it today, Jesus will always provoke a reaction. He cannot be on earth and not draw all evil and all good to himself. For in him, all things hold together. Once his public ministry begins, it is only a matter of time. So as we read the Gospels, we see that even as he is drawing all the weak and all the oppressed to himself, so also, I hope you see, he is drawing to himself every kind of opposition, every kind of evil. The weak throw themselves at his mercy, and they almost crush him in their desire to come to him and be helped. And meanwhile, the evil hurl themselves against him to destroy him. He is, and he always will be, the magnetic center of our universe. His presence on earth, even in his humble form of a servant, is overwhelming in the reaction it creates. Well, these two factors, the overwhelming needs of the people and his upcoming death and ascension to heaven, lead him naturally, I think, to the appointment or the commissioning of 12 of his disciples as apostles. In the light of the crushing needs of the people and the nonstop opposition of demons and false teachers, Jesus appoints 12 men to continue his work and to be his missionaries. Let's this morning look together at the pattern of Jesus' own commissioning of the 12 and how we can grow and learn from it. So with that introduction, please stand. As is our tradition, we'll read together verses 13 through 19. This is Mark chapter 3. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do look to you now to open the word to us, to work through your spirit, to draw us near to Christ, to understand his work here and to profit from it. And so, we, Father, Father, we pray, be very near to us now as we study your word. Open our hearts to receive it with joy. Take away from us the distractions of this world and of this life and help us now to devote ourselves entirely to your word. For it is from your word, Father, that we draw all that we need for the Christian life. So bless us, strengthen us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As a Christian church, and I hope you sense this in the singing of the Gloria Patri this morning, as a Christian church, our first confession is that we believe in the Trinity, the Trinity, In other words, we believe that Jesus was and is fully God. In him, to use Paul's words, in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is, as we confess sometimes on Sunday nights, we'll say the Nicene Creed, we'll we'll say together, he is very God of very God, begotten, not created. But Jesus' full divinity, and we confess that of course, his full divinity should not cloud or obscure our confession of his true humanity. He was, and he still is, a true human person. He took to himself a true human body. I I want to begin this way this morning, because I want to clarify for you what is happening in this passage. Jesus, as God, is truly perfect in all of his works, all of his words, all of his ministry here. His ministry in Mark is immaculate. It's flawless. As Jesus will later tell his disciples, when they are watching him do ministry, they are watching God do ministry. And yet, don't miss this. This fully divine ministry is happening, as we noted, in the context of war, sorrow, sorrow. Uh, The Roman occupation of the Jewish people. There's opposition, there's illness, there's hunger, there's thirst, there's a thousand other difficulties. In our passage today, Jesus is not yet bodily raised and glorified. He's operating with a body like ours, like mine. Uh, He has a body with limitations. He needs sleep. If you read the gospels, you see that. He needs rest. He can only be in one place at one time. Therefore, Jesus, knowing these limitations and knowing that his time on earth was short and that the need was great and that the fields are ripe for harvest, he set aside 12 men to be with him, to continue with him, and become his foundational witnesses to the world. Today, we call those men apostles, just as our text says, Jesus named them that. The word apostle means one who is sent out. The office of apostle, as we've noticed in our study of 1 Timothy recently, the office of apostle is not open today. We don't have apostles today. Uh, we are not apostles in this foundational sense. This was a one-time calling that included 12 men, and later, finally, the apostle Paul is the 13th. So what is happening here in your text is a unique moment In the history of redemption, it's a profound moment, actually, in the story of the Bible. These 12, like 12 new tribes of Israel, will be the foundation stones upon which Jesus is going to construct the entire New Testament church. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians that as an apostle, he has laid a foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. No one else can take the role these men have. And so this is a foundational uh, moment in Scripture. But that being said, I think there are lessons here. I hope you can see with me this morning. There are patterns here that apply to us and even to our Armenia team. There are just basic patterns of what it means to do ministry in a fallen world as representatives of Christ. And I want to bring those patterns before you this morning. So three dynamics in our text, three dynamics of ministry at any time, really, as we serve Christ. So look with me first at the way Jesus calls us into ministry. Second, the work Jesus calls us to do. And third, the people Jesus calls us with. The way Jesus calls us, the work Jesus calls us to, and the people Jesus calls us with. So first notice the way Jesus calls and commissions people to serve him. Look with me again at verse 3 through the beginning of verse 4. Mark writes, He went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Now, that is just a very little verse, but I would say to you, I would contend with you that it's packed, really just packed, with drama and meaning. It starts with Jesus doing something uh, he often did in his ministry at key moments. If you read the Gospels, you'll pick up on how at critical spots, turning points really, Jesus would withdraw to the mountains to pray. In fact, in Luke's account of this moment, uh, same moment, he tells us that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer as he prepared to commission these 12 as his apostles. Years later, the disciples could write about this and look back on it and be encouraged. Their calling was no accident It wasn't a fad or something that simply kind of fell into place. Their calling emerged out of the rich prayer life of their Savior. If they felt at times less than called, this would be a huge encouragement to them. Jesus' very intentional ministry of prayerful calling is then continued throughout the Gospels. Jesus does not cease to pray for those he calls, His most famous prayer in John chapter 17, known as the High Priestly Prayer of Christ, is a magnificently rich prayer on the behalf of these same 12 and for us as well. Not only that, but you'll remember, I think, that just before his betrayal, just before his death, Jesus assured Peter that although Satan had asked for Peter, Jesus, he says, I have prayed for you. And so Peter would escape and Peter would turn. I hope as we each go out to our calling this week and our team goes to Armenia, we can sense a bit of this on our behalf today. Yes, this trip has been, I think, faithfully bathed in prayer. But it is Christ's prayers for our team. It's Christ's prayers for us that can really give us hope and confidence in difficult times. As the calling is prayerful, so it's also commanding. As Jesus moves from now prayer, doesn't he, to sovereignty and to command, Mark's wording is quite intentional. Mark writes, He called the ones he desired, and he called them apostles. Here, Jesus is breaking with sort of the conventions of the time. He's breaking with tradition. In Judaism, in the Old Testament, the student applies to the rabbi to become a disciple, much as our young people apply to colleges. But for their protection and their encouragement, Jesus doesn't wait for them to apply. He sovereignly calls them each, you'll notice in the text, he calls them each by name, he calls those he wants. He invites them then to the mountain to receive from him their commission. Again, I think this was to encourage them so that they could look back years later. Remember, all these men, except maybe John, were martyred, brutally murdered for their faith. And through all that hardship and all that difficulty, they would always be able to look back to this moment and remember, I didn't come up with this idea. I didn't self-appoint myself. I didn't ordain myself to this ministry. Christ called me. He called me up onto the mountain. And they could lean on that moment and on the sovereignty of God's call on their life. I think there's something here also of the book of Genesis in this text. Remember, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is the word of God and that he spoke into existence the creation And Adam then later, as Jesus' representative, all the animals are brought before Adam. And what does he do? He names them. And there's something of that here, isn't there? Do you notice how Jesus begins even to rename some of his disciples and then gives to them authoritatively, sovereignly, as a spoken word of creation, gives to them their title, you will be known as the apostles. Do you see the decree here? This is not just a wish fulfillment. This is a king on his throne. This is Jesus in his majesty choosing those he desires and renaming them even and calling their life and calling their ministry and calling their office into existence by his words, by the words of his mouth. Just one last little bit of detail. Mark adds that all this happened on a mountain, Now, Jesus was with these men all the time. He could have easily over dinner or at any time said, hey, here's the 12, here's who you're going to be, here's what we're going to do. And yet he goes up on this mountain, spends the night in prayer, and then summons them to himself on this mountain. Why in the world would, would he do that? Well, remember, these men are Jews and they're heavily steeped in the Old Testament, far more so than we are. And they know that the mountain throughout the whole of the Old Testament is the place God commissions men to ministry. Think of the most obvious, maybe the most famous, is Moses wandering up into the mountain to find the burning bush. And there's something of that, I think, smoldering in our text here. That Jesus, as the new burning bush, as the one alight with the power of the Holy Spirit, burning but not consume, is summoning up these 12 Moseses to himself and giving them the rod of office and calling them to their work. So do you see something here? Something of how Jesus calls people, not just apostles, but all of us. His calling is purposeful even though it may feel random to us. It is prayerful. It is born in his perfect life of prayer for all his church. In the book of Revelation, we're reminded that Jesus, even now as I'm preaching, stands as high priest right now on our behalf in heaven. And it is sovereign. He stands as the creator. He stands on God's holy hill in heaven He names us, defines us, and even renames us and commands us. And his voice brings into being all that he speaks. And so he gifts and calls his people. And all of this was done. Do you see? All of this was done for these 12 men whose lives are going to be brutally difficult from this moment on, who are going to die, almost all of them, in agony and martyrdom. It's done so that they might never question, might never wonder that they were called. Today, I want to encourage the whole Armenia team to drink from these verses. See how Jesus calls us. We have no idea how this trip is going to go. We think we know, but only God knows. But at the end of the day, all that really matters is that Jesus has called you to go. He has opened the door for you to go. He's met the financial needs for you to go. He has made the connections for you to go. And whatever happens, you need to rest in that calling. You may be sure of nothing else, but you can be sure of that. Rest in the sovereignty of Christ who has called you to do this and has promised to help you in it, whatever that looks like. But the same is true for all of us. All of us gathered here have a ministry. We are all called to serve others, to love Christ, to share the gospel, to do a thousand difficult things. And we need to be reminded that we too are called to life and ministry. He has given us our spouse. He has given us our children, our job, our singleness, if we're not married, our gifts, whatever they may be. These decisions were not accidents. They were not fate, but purposeful and loving acts of a sovereign savior, because this is the way Jesus calls his people. So see first the way he calls his people. See second of all with me now, the kind of ministry Jesus calls us to. The way he calls us now, the work Jesus calls us to. And I see this especially in verses 14 and 15. Mark writes, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Now, when we first read that, maybe this was your reaction when I read it, we might be tempted to say, well, that was for back then. Uh, These were apostles. I'm not an apostle. This is not what I'm called to do. I'm not called to preach. I'm not called uh, to cast out demons. I don't have a gift of healing. I can't go to CHOP in Philadelphia and walk around CHOP's cancer ward and heal all the children. And that's true. Uh, We as a church do not believe that these apostolic gifts uh, exist today. We do believe that people are healed We do believe as a church that exorcisms happen. I've been around those situations personally. These things still occur. What we don't believe is that anyone today is an apostle in this sense. Uh, Peter was able, the scriptures tell us, Peter could walk down the street and his shadow would fall on sick people and they would be healed. He had that level, that kind of power to cast out demons, to heal the sick and so forth. Obviously, most of us are also not called to preach. This is a unique calling. These men were called to go to all the corners of the world and systematically and thoroughly teach and preach the gospel. Uh, I have that calling. A few other people in this room have that calling. But in general, we're not all called to do that. But I, I would argue with you this morning that although that's the case, we're not apostles, I get that. The pattern here applies The basic pattern applies to every one of your lives. This is the way Jesus does ministry in the world. And just notice a few parts of it. First of all, Jesus always calls us to do ministry with him and in imitation of him. Notice what Mark says. Jesus was calling these 12 to be with him. And then as you read through Mark, what you find out that means is they were going to sleep with him eat with him, suffer with him, be on boats with him in storms. They were going to follow him around everywhere he went. There was going to be an imitation, an imitation of the Savior that was to happen in their lives. And, and this was very common at the time. A rabbi would take a student, and, and it wasn't like college. You didn't just go to the rabbi's lectures you know, for an hour and then go back to your dorm room and study. That's not how it works. In this system, Elijah, Elisha, rabbis with their students, Jesus with his disciples, you lived with them. You learned their way of life. You learned to think like them, act like them, speak like them. Jesus taught, remember the Lord's Prayer, he taught them how to pray. How should we pray? What does it look like to pray in the way Jesus would have us pray? It was a whole life of imitation, And so whether you're a pastor or you're on the missions team, whatever you're doing, the way Jesus does ministry in the world is not by us sort of becoming ourselves, but rather by us becoming like Christ. It is through imitation. That's why we're called Christians. Literally, little Christ. We're being conformed to his image. We're called to imitate him, to walk with him, to be more like him. And and that's why ministry happens in so many moments of our lives, not just when you're sharing the gospel with your unsafe friend, but when you're suffering at home, when your child is being a pain, and you're being kind and gracious to them, even though they're being disrespectful to you. What are you doing there? You're imitating the patience of the Savior, because that's what ministry looks like. Ministry is not just doing certain tasks or putting on some kind of robe or hat carrying around some kind of staff. Ministry is imitation. And so Jesus says to these men, you 12 are now going to be with me, with me in everything I do, with me in everything I go through, with me in all the bitterness, so that you may come to imitate me in ministry. The second dynamic of how Jesus works, you notice, is that there's always word ministry. There's imitation, And there's word ministry. He appointed the 12, Mark says, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. The disciples here, of course, uh, specifically were called to formal preaching. Uh, The gospel of Mark that you're holding in your hands right now is the fruit of that. Mark is the spiritual son and secretary of the apostle Peter. And Mark took the teachings of Peter... He would have memorized them verbatim, and he wrote this gospel, what we call Mark's gospel. Christ works in the world through his word. He always works through his word. Look, there is, there's nowhere in the world today, there's nowhere in the world today where the church is growing and people are coming to Christ where it is not centered on the word of God. The word of God has the power within it because it is God's word and not the word of men. The word of God creates the church. The church does not create the word. The Word of God creates the church. It brings it to life because it is the Word of God. And so all ministry that we do, whether it's you're reading the Bible at night to your child, you're witnessing to your co-worker, whatever it is you're doing, it will be imitation of Christ and it will be word-focused. And then just one other dynamic to the way the thing kind of work Jesus calls us to. You'll notice it'll always be marked by conflict. It'll always be marked by conflict, Jesus anticipates that as they go out to do this, they will be opposed. Jesus says, I'm sending you out to preach, and I'm sending you out to cast out demons. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you to Israel, to Jews, to people who know God, and there's going to be so much demonic opposition in trying to give the gospel to God's own people, That I've got to equip you to cast out demons. Think about that. Think about the opposition that Christ's disciples are going to meet throughout the world as they go forward with this message. And and this, I think, brothers and sisters, is a place where, where we are constantly failing, especially, I think, in our day and age. We think that doing this together, even what I'm doing right now is going to be easy. It's not God has told us, Christ has told us, you're going to be opposed. This team that's going out is going to be opposed. The darkness is not going to surrender to us at, at the first uh, you know, time we step onto the field of battle. That's not how it works. Your kids are going to oppose you when you try to teach the gospel to them. They're going to oppose you when you try to lead the family in prayer, because they're sinners. I'm not saying they're demon-possessed. I'm just saying they're sinners. There's, there's darkness everywhere. Your unbelieving friends are going to oppose you. And, and what I think is really lacking in the church today, and I know in my own heart, is courage. We are going to be opposed. There are tons of powers involved in our world that we don't even see that are completely dedicated to stopping us from doing what Christ is calling us to do. And so even as Jesus is sending them out to imitate him and to share his word, he's saying to them, you're going to go out and you're going to face demons. You're going to face satanic opposition. In other words, just as I am a magnet for all these demonic presences, they notice all through the gospel, they show up to talk to him. They show up to fight with him. He So you as my disciples are going to be like magnets. You are like the porch light on at night in the summer. All the bugs are going to be drawn to you. And that is true for us. It's true for our team. It's true for all who would serve Christ. You are going to bring to yourself, when you, when you become an elder or a deacon, you become a pastor, you go on a missions trip, anything you do for Jesus in this world will be like turning that light on and it will draw all kinds of darkness All kinds of opposition to you. And so Jesus equips his church with his word, calls them to imitate him, and warns them of the opposition. Well, one last dynamic. We've seen the way Jesus calls us, the kind of work that he's called us to. Lastly, notice with me the people Jesus calls us with. The people Jesus calls us with. Not just to, but with. And you see this primarily in verses 16 through 19. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges or sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As we run down those uh, familiar names, I wonder if you've ever paused just to consider what a strange group of people this was. Uh, This was not the A-team we might have expected. It's quite a unique group. Simon, for example, is called a zealot. That is, he was a determined Jewish national. Usually that carried with it a hint of insurrection, maybe possible violence against Rome. Rome. At the whole other end of the spectrum, you have Matthew, who was a tax collector that is a collaborator with the Roman occupation of the Jews, so a slimy kind of character. As we get to know these men, I think we're constantly struck with how different they were after reading about the lives of Peter and John and reading the things they wrote. It's hard to imagine two men more different than Peter and John. And age and their disposition and their writings. On top of that, notice also that some of them are related to each other. Just as people in our team this morning, many of them are related. James and John were brothers, and they were also Jesus' cousins. God often works through families, and so you have brothers and cousins here. Now, that might not sound overly important to you uh, unless you've done ministry before with family members. And if you have, you know there's unique challenges, you know, when you're squabbling uh, a little bit. Uh, We have a unique situation in our church where we have a father and son pair on our session, which is somewhat unusual. They get along really well, but there's unique dynamics, isn't there, when God actually calls family members to serve together together. This comes up at the Last Supper where James and John, the brothers, uh, ask Jesus for the best seats in his kingdom. They're used to working together as brothers. And so all these dynamics of different dispositions, different personalities, different backgrounds even different sins that they had in the past. Simon being the zealot, Matthew being the text collector, Peter being older, John being younger, John being more uh, mystical, if you will, in his disposition, Peter being very direct, very much a man of action. What a group, what an unusual group of people God has called us to do ministry with. But the hardest and the most astounding part of this group, of course, is Jesus' selection of Judas. Now remember, Jesus has prayed all night earnestly about this. Judas is not a mistake. It's not an oversight. Jesus chooses him and he calls him. But why did Jesus choose Judas? Judas. There were other good candidates. We know this because at the beginning of the book of Acts, another person takes Judas's place. So we know there were men who could have done this. Why did Jesus pass over other good candidates and choose Judas, who he even calls later on in the Gospels a devil? Jesus, I believe, wanted to show them and us that there will always be men like this in the church. If Jesus' inner circle had been perfect, if those 12 men had been perfect, then for thousands of years, we would all be searching for perfection. We'd all be demanding that our elders be perfect, that our deacons be perfect. We'd be trying to recreate again and again this sort of perfection, wouldn't we? Because it's just the way we are as humans. But the disciples' many failings and the presence and apostasy of Judas provide us a much more realistic model when we think about who Jesus has called us to do ministry with. That doesn't mean we tolerate unbelief. Judas, of course, is dealt with. His works catch up with him in really the worst of ways. However, I do think here Jesus is reminding us that as God calls us to serve him, the people we serve alongside are not always going to be the easiest people to get along with. Uh, hour 12 of the flight to Armenia. This might uh, manifest itself uh, when you say to yourself, I can't believe I'm doing this with this person and, and, and they're annoying snoring, or I'm going to have to put up with this dynamic of their personality. This is a motley crew uh, that we're presented here in these verses. And yet Jesus does this on purpose. He's not, he's not trying to put together the perfect team. He's putting together sinful men, broken men, who he's calling to serve him. And that's still what he does today. It's what he's doing right now. He's calling together a diverse group of people with all their struggles to serve him and love him. And it's not easy. Opposition doesn't just come from out there, from satanic elements. At times, we oppose each other. At times, we make life hard on each other. So Armenia team, and really all believers here, see, I hope, in all of this, once again, yourselves. That's the beauty of the disciples. We're able to see ourselves in them. We too are his disciples. Uh, Yes, our calling is different. However, our lives are reflected in theirs. And isn't that why every generation of Christians loves to hear these stories? Don't you feel for Peter when... He puts his foot in his mouth, and he does that often. Don't you sympathize with Thomas when he says, I can't believe without hard evidence. Yes, there are differences, but following Jesus, learning from Jesus, and serving Jesus still follows the basic outlines presented in these verses. So when you wonder, why am I here? Why am I doing what I'm doing in my life? Remember the calling of Christ, how he has placed you where you are, how he called the disciples and appointed them. Trust in his prayer life. Trust in his calling on your life. When you wonder, what am I supposed to be about? How is the work of my life to be accomplished? Take from passages like this a sense of your calling. You are to resist the present evil age in every way you can, but especially through his word. And lastly, remember that Jesus will win and always wins through weakness. He calls a weak and divided people to do his work so that through their weakness, he might be strong. So remember his promises. And our Armenia team especially today Fear not, remember his promise. I am with you, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this brief but wonderful passage and for the way in which still today you do these things in our lives. We do now go out to the ministries you have called each one of us to, whether at home or in the world or on this trip. And we ask that the Spirit would go with us in strength and in power, that we might represent Christ, imitating him in everything, sharing his word with everyone. And when we are discouraged by our own weakness or the weakness of brothers and sisters around us, remind us once again that you will triumph, but you will only triumph in weakness. For all the glory must be yours. And so, Father, we give you all the glory. For you have triumphed through the weakness of the cross. You have set up a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You love to work through weakness. Help us to rest in that truth today. And we ask it and pray for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.